Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel according to Luke in chapter 4. We continue this morning to look at a section uh, that we will be in for quite some time that has to do with Jesus' ministry in Galilee, that northern region of the land of Israel where Jesus grew up and where he spent uh, many, many months of his earthly ministry proclaiming the good news to people, doing signs and wonders, and trying to point them to understand just who he was so that they would put their faith in him. This passage is no exception. Luke chapter 4, we'll read starting in verse 14, and then we will read through verse 21. Luke chapter 4, verse 14, and Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The people in Israel at this time had been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for centuries on end. Waiting for a certain person to show up who would fulfill and bring the fulfillment of so many things that God had promised them in ages past now he is here he shows up as something of a celebrity something of a popular figure one who is uh, one who is growing in his fame and one who is spoken well of as we see in verse 15 he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all and often it is when someone is so well known when they're growing in popularity growing in celebrity it's not so much them that person who is doing the self-proclamation and making claims about themselves but word is spreading about them by other people as it was here and yet when jesus shows up to nazareth he doesn't let other people do the talking for him instead he comes and directly declares himself to be someone that if there were anyone else saying this would be blasphemy to say the least if anyone else showed up and started to speak this way about themselves then we would throw them out because they would be arrogant and they would be wrong. But for Jesus, this is not the case. Israel has been waiting and now Jesus is here. The anointed one has come and he is letting them know, not just in general in the nation, not even just in the region of Galilee, but in his hometown. Now we'll see in the section that follows next week about how they responded to this. But before we can even understand how they responded and what they were responding to, we need to understand just what it was that Jesus is claiming about himself. And of course it is a very, very bold claim. 
he is claiming that he is none other than the Christ. He is the anointed one, the one who has been promised and the one who has been awaited for so long, according to the scriptures. And when he is expected and yet not exactly expected in this way, he shows up and tells the people that he is here. In this passage, in chapter 4, verses 16 to 21, Jesus presents himself as the anointed one. It is true of him that this is who he is, and other people are asking the question, but he tells his hearers in no uncertain terms that he is the Christ, the anointed one of God. And so we'll walk through this passage and see how he does this, and along the way, what we need to understand about this unique person who is now setting himself forth as the one who should be trusted and followed. We begin in verse 16 where we find that he returns to his hometown of Nazareth. He returns to his hometown of Nazareth. He grew up there. We learned this in earlier passages. Jesus had been born in Bethlehem of Judea, but after some time of going into Egypt to run away from the persecution of Herod, he returned to Israel, and then he was told to go away from there and go up into the northern part of the country, into Galilee, and then he grew up in Nazareth. This is where he had been brought up for his whole life. Obviously, there were some trips to other places. He used to go down to the feast, as we read about in chapter 2. And then, of course, Jesus had been ministering in the southern part of the nation for probably the better part of a year before returning to Galilee. But this was his hometown. This is where he had been brought up. When he arrives... He is there, and he comes into the synagogue, and we learn, according to Mark 6, verse 1, a parallel passage to this account, that he wasn't alone. His disciples, Mark tells us, followed him. Now, when we think of the disciples, very often the first thing that comes to mind is a number. And what number is that? Twelve. The twelve disciples. And probably all twelve of them were with him, but... At this point, it's likely that it isn't just those 12 apostles, but some larger number, not necessarily the crowds that would follow him everywhere, but his followers. So maybe there would be some women among that group who followed him around, or other people, other men who were not among the 12. But the point is that he is not alone. He has developed a following at this point, and he returns to Nazareth with these people following him. Now, he shows up here, and Luke describes this account uh, immediately upon beginning to talk about Jesus' ministry in Galilee. But it's most likely that Nazareth is one of the later places that Jesus goes when he ministers in Galilee, or at least a place where he, has been, where he goes after having been there for some time. When you read the parallel accounts in Mark and Matthew, where they describe the same event taking place, they note this account later in their chronology. And so what it seems that Luke is doing here is simply telling us about this event earlier on in the passage, not to claim that it's happening before the other things that are going on, but simply to point out something that's very significant for Luke's purposes. So he's teaching in all of, the, of Galilee. Everyone is praising him. And after journeying around for some time and doing this, he's developed something of a reputation. And we see this in verse 23 where he said, No doubt you'll quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So this is not the first stop for Jesus. But it is very significant. For what Luke wants us to know. And what we're going to find over and over again when we go through the Gospel of Luke is that Jesus presents himself to people. He preaches the message of salvation that comes to him. He preaches the Gospel and proclaims the Gospel. But he wants to show us, Luke does, 
that Jesus and those who follow him will sometimes be rejected and hated, even by the people who are closest to him, in this case, his family. He is going to make this point over and over again. He says later on, if you don't hate your own mother and father and children and even your own life, you can't be my disciple. What is he saying by that? That you should violate the commands against hatred in the scripture? No, of course not. What he's saying is that you need to love me so much that you're willing to be rejected by people who hate you on my account. And Luke drives this point home right up front by bringing us into the town of Nazareth where Jesus is rejected by the people that he grew up with. So what does he do? He goes into the synagogue, as was his custom, it says in verse 16. He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. Mark 6 verse 2 tells us that there were many listeners who were there hearing him as he goes to read and as he then declares the things that he declares about himself. He enters the synagogue and it tells us in verse 16, he stood up to read. What is it then that Jesus read? Well, verse 17 through 20 tells us that he reads a prophecy of Isaiah. So he returns to his hometown of Nazareth and then he reads a prophecy of Isaiah. Now, reading of the scripture is perhaps the main thing that people were gathered into the synagogue for. They would come together and have all kinds of religious practices while they were there, but reading the scriptures and then learning from them, being taught from them, someone expounding the scriptures and teaching on the basis of what they had read, this was what they were there for. And Jesus stands up to be involved in this. People were reading the Bible and people were gathered together to hear the Bible. And I think that it should be noted up front that we will see this throughout Luke as well, but we see it here even right now. Just because people were gathered together to read and hear the word of God, that did not mean that they were right with God at all. There were plenty of people in this synagogue who, when presented with Jesus Christ and presented with the truth about him and told that he is the anointed one, the Messiah, and they were told to accept him on his terms, they said, we're here for the Bible, and we're here to listen to the truth, but we're not accepting you. Being gathered in a place to listen to God's word is no definitive indicator that you are saved at all. It doesn't indicate at all that you belong to God. Many people in this time in Israel, just as they had before and just as they have since then, would listen repeatedly, week after week after week after week, to God's word and not be right with God because they were not willing to come to him on his terms. And this is illustrated by the people of Nazareth as they hear Jesus and they will ultimately reject him in unbelief. In fact, these people who listened to the Bible week after week were some of the most hostile people toward Jesus that you could find in the entire world. Once again, so it is today as there is church after church after church that gathers under the name of Jesus Christ and yet when the Bible is brought home in passages that they don't like, when theological truths are drawn from the scriptures that don't align with the way that they already think, when demands are placed upon them, when things are stated about the dividing line of saving faith or not being based upon Jesus and not just everybody ending up in heaven, people don't like it and they get hostile and they call people names and they say, this is not the way that things are. This is not what God likes. But this is exactly what God says. And so when we come before the truth, we need to recognize that we don't just listen to the Bible. We don't just hear it taught. We need to make sure that we humble our hearts 
and we accept the Savior who is presented here, and we accept all the truth that he lays out. This is what Jesus demands, and this is what he shows and illustrates by the way that he sets himself forth here and the way that he is responded to in the wrong way. Jesus reads a prophecy from Isaiah. How is the passage selected? Well, it says here, the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Uh, This is a a beautiful passive statement here because it indicates for us that Jesus didn't really have any say in the choosing of the passage insofar as Jesus, the man, selected the passage to be read. This, This was not his choice of book. But it is very obviously not only being chosen by the synagogue official who would have selected this, the attendant most likely in this case, but of course this was selected in the wisdom and providence of the sovereign God who wanted Isaiah to be put before the people so that Jesus could then go and select the passage that he wanted to read on this day. God chose the book to be read, and then Jesus, taking opportunity through that, it says, opened the book and found the place where it was written. A particular place in this book. And I love the way that this language is used over and over again. The place where it was written. It was written. It's the same type of language. Even the same tense that's involved. When Jesus uh, refutes the devil's efforts to tempt him. And says it stands written. It is in a state of having been written. It is permanently fixed. What was written in the past will never change. And it endures with ongoing eternal significance and implications for all the way into the future. And this is what it is here. The place where it stands written. Jesus then takes the book and he finds that place. And he finds that unchanging text of scripture that he wants to go to. What place did he find? He found Isaiah 61. Verse 1 and the first half of verse 2. This seems quite intentional. He knew the place in Isaiah, and he took advantage of the opportunity because he wanted to highlight something specific from Isaiah's prophetic words. Let's see what he wanted to read. Verse 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Why this passage? And what does it mean? Why is Jesus going here? And what's so significant about it? Well, to understand this a little bit, let's turn back and do some exploring in the book of Isaiah around the place where Jesus chose to read from. Turn back, if you would, to Isaiah. And let's go back to Isaiah 59. If you turn backward into your Old Testament, you will find it. Uh, Isaiah, we'll start in 59. I'm going to read... Uh, a somewhat extensive section that leads up to leads up to this section in Isaiah 61. <clears throat> we'll start in chapter 59, verse 14. You can just follow along as I read. And it is something of a long passage, so try to keep your focus as I do that. Justice, Isaiah 59, 14, justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away, for truth is stumbled in the street, and uprightness cannot enter. Yes, truth is lacking, and he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. Now the Lord saw, and it was displeasing in his sight, that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man, and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm 
brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, to the coastlands he will make recompense. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. A redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. Do you notice the promise in verse 20? Who will come? A redeemer. Where will he come? To Zion, to the land of Israel, to Jerusalem. And who are the beneficiaries? Those who turn from transgression in Jacob. Those who repent. God will send a redeemer to a specific people. And the ones who benefit are those who repent, declares the Lord. We go on. To read about God's promises to that nation and those people. Verse 21. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit which is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. He speaks directly to the nation and says this. Arise Shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Chapter 60, verse 2. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes round about and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar, and your daughters will be carried in the arms. Then you will see and be radiant, and your heart will thrill and rejoice, because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. The wealth of the nations will come to you. A multitude of camels will cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba will come. They'll bring gold and frankincense and will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar will be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth will minister to you. They'll go up with acceptance on my altar, and I shall glorify my glorious house. Who are these who fly like a cloud? And like the doves to their lattices, surely the coastlands will wait for me and the ships of Tarshish will come first to bring your sons from afar, their silver and their gold with them. For the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel because he has glorified you. Do you see the wondrous things that are being spoken about this land and the promises that are given to this people? This is not the situation in which Israel found themselves as Jesus arrives. Verse 10, foreigners will build up your walls and their kings will minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, and in my favor I have had compassion on you. Your gates will be open continually. They'll not be closed day or night, so that men may bring to you the wealth of nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation and the kingdom which will not serve you will perish, and the nations will be utterly ruined. The glory of Lebanon will come to you, the juniper, the box tree, the cypress together to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I shall make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you will come bowing to you. And all those who despise you will bow themselves at the soles of your feet. And they will call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you an everlasting pride, a joy from generation to generation. You will also suck the milk of nations and suck the breast of kings. Then you will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I'll bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. And instead of stones, iron. And I will make peace your administrators and righteousness your overseers. Violence will not be heard again in your land, nor devastation or destruction within your borders. But you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. 
No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor brightness will the moon will give you light, nor for brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, and your God for your glory. Your sun will no longer set, nor will your moon wane, for you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, and the days of your mourning will be over. Then all your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. The smallest one will become a clan, and the least one a mighty nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. So, the Lord has seen evil in Israel. And tons of people are therefore in a terrible situation. This displeases the Lord. And he's shocked to see that no one will do anything about it. There's no man who's going to stand up and intercede for people who are suffering. So I'm going to take matters into my own hands, he says. And he is going to send a redeemer to those who turn from their transgression, those who repent. He makes a covenant with them, chapter 59, verse 21, that his spirit and his words will stay permanently there among the people of Israel. Chapter 60, God says Israel is going to be exalted among the nations, while those who oppose them will be judged and brought to ruin. And they will prosper and be at peace and will never mourn again. Verse 21 tells us they will all be righteous and they will possess the land forever. But how is that going to come about? How will these terrible circumstances be overturned? How will the promises of God be ushered in? All of this will happen through a person that God has set apart for this task. And this person will bring great news to all of those who are in a bad place. And he will bring God's vengeance on behalf of God's people to their enemies. Chapter 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. The Spirit of the Lord, then, is upon this one. And it is, as we have already learned in Luke, reminiscent of the Old Testament prophets and other men who had the Spirit of God upon them. Moses, or Bezalel, who helped construct the temple, or the prophets, or kings like Saul and David. This one will have the Spirit upon him. And Isaiah 61 shifts to this person speaking. Israel's deliverer, being the one vocalizing what God is going to do. He is not simply, it is not simply God speaking to Israel, but now this one steps in and says, I am the one, and the Spirit of God is upon me to carry out all that God has promised. That is the meaning of Isaiah 61. And this one says that there are things that he is going to do. We can go back to Luke chapter 4, where Jesus reads what this anointed one is going to do. He says, he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to preach the good news to the poor. Now, there are many things that are good news that are spoken of uh, as part of the good news or the message of the gospel. We often think of the gospel as those key components of the work of Jesus Christ and what he did. And that, of course, is at the heart of what we as Christians understand and know in the fullness of divine revelation in the Bible to be the gospel, that Christ came into the world as the God-man, the perfect man who never sinned, who lived a perfect life and who died on a cross, sacrificing himself as an offering for sins because we couldn't pay that price apart from eternal judgment, but we deserve it. 
So Jesus died on a cross and then he was raised from the dead by God on the third day to vindicate who he was and to gain for us eternal life. So that not only do we have our sins forgiven, but death is no longer master over us. And that all who turn from their sins and put their faith in him will have that eternal life and that forgiveness of sins. This is the message of the gospel. But in the scriptures, this term for preaching good news sometimes, even often, has a little bit of a broader context or a broader application. And it's speaking more generally here as well in Luke chapter 4, because not only do the poor have good news preached to them in the sense that they can have their sins forgiven, but God recognizes that these people are in a bad situation. And he says that the good news includes this fact that your poverty is going to be dealt with. Now, we're going to talk through a little bit of how all of these promises are fulfilled that Jesus is referring to in verses 18 and 19. Because there are some bad situations. You notice this here. The poor, captives, blind, oppressed. These are hard situations. These are difficult things. And I just want to make sure that we realize up front that God actually cares about the fact that those things are hard. He looks upon these things and he doesn't say, well, things of this earth and this life doesn't matter at all because what really matters is the spiritual promises that I have made to you for the life to come. Those do matter more, but God also recognizes that when he restores all things, he's going to do something about these kinds of things as well. And God understands that people that are in these situations should not be in those situations forever. And he has compassion upon them and he wants to do something about it. So what is he talking about here when he refers, first of all, to the poor? Well, he is talking about uh, a message that is not limited to the poor. Um, he doesn't unconditionally change things for the poor. He doesn't go to the poor and say that I'm going to make all the poor people rich and the rich people poor. It's not a kind of reversal like that that sometimes people want. What this simply means is that there are many people, and in this context, people in Israel who are impoverished. And that the redemption God promises includes a promise that poverty is not their permanent eternal state just because they're in it now. It's too easy for us to look at spiritual riches and how they're more valuable than physical riches and to see the warnings that God does give against wanting to be rich in, its, in this world and then say basically that poverty is kind of a big bunch of nothing. We don't really, we shouldn't even think anything about it. But God doesn't think this way. Poverty was not included before the fall, nor was blindness and captivity and oppression. And so God understands that even though there are more important things than changing these circumstances, that changing these circumstances in an eternal timeline does matter. And so he intends to take this away. This is part of the good news, the proclamation of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, there is a spiritual equivalent of rescuing the poor from their spiritual poverty and we'll talk about that here in a few moments but we don't want to overlook that there are people who because of the mistreatment of others in particular in Isaiah 59 and 60 who are impoverished and God intends to rescue them from that at the same time we understand that the people that God accepts he doesn't accept them because they lack money he doesn't come and say well you are poor therefore you're getting into heaven and so there are many people that think that God owes them something because they've had a hard time in this life. That's simply not the way that it is. You can have someone who is richer than anyone else and yet is humble before God and will be saved. And you can have someone who is poorer than anyone else and yet is stubborn and proud and refuses to accept the gift of God's grace. 
your physical circumstances really are not determinative at all of your spiritual condition. It can be and it is more difficult for those who are rich to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus specifically said this. In one sense, that's simply because they have more to lose. So it's more difficult to give up everything to follow Jesus. But nonetheless, being rich is no guarantee of judgment and being poor is no guarantee of salvation. He's simply saying that he came and he recognizes that people are in a hard spot. And to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, those people will have good news come to their lives. He says as well, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. People are captive because of various types of confinement, imprisonment, enslavement, even maybe military captivity. Whatever reason it is, people have their freedoms limited, often wrongly, often being forcefully relocated by others. Israel was in this situation at this time as a nation. They were captive to a ruling empire. And he says, I'm going to proclaim release to you. Release to the captives. Recovery of sight to the blind. He talks about people who have physical hardships. People who are, have physical disabilities. They literally can't even see in this case. And of course, I think that it's not a stretch to take the implications from this to anything that is a physical limitation. Especially one that is abnormal, whether being blind or deaf or any such thing. And God intends to do something about this. This is not going to be the eternal permanent state of God's people, he's going to change this. And he's going to set free those who are oppressed. That was much of the tenor of Isaiah 59 and 60. The people in Israel were mistreated by those who had the power in the nation. Now people will take this and extrapolate all sorts of uh, power dynamics and read their own philosophies into this text. That doesn't, uh, we don't have the permission to do that. But we can recognize that there are people who are treated like objects. The means to an end of someone else's enrichment or success or happiness or power. And God is displeased by this. And for those who belong to him, he intends to get them out of such a vulnerable situation one day. God intends to do all of these things. And this falls under the umbrella of what he describes in verse 19. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. There's beautiful language here of the type of the Jubilee year, which happened every 50 years in Israel under the Mosaic law, uh, according to Leviticus chapter 25. Um, on this timeline, things were supposed to be reset at this time every 50 years, and uh, mortgaged and leased property would revert to its original territory and owner. Uh, they would account for that in the way that it was dealt with before that. Slaves were set free. Now, this was not really something that took place in Israel. And, of course, this is in part because Israel had a general disposition to disregard God's law overall. They didn't care about practicing any of what the law said. But you can kind of see why someone would look at Leviticus 25, someone who is in power in the country, and say, yeah, I don't think we're going to do that. I don't think we're going to give all of that back. Because, you know, I'm, I'm doing pretty well off of the backs of people who I have their property and I have their stuff. Those who are more powerful would be mistreating others. And the Jubilee year, which was meant to protect against that, would not enable that to take place. So the language here is, is uh, indicative of that. Even if he's not talking specifically about the Jubilee, what he's saying is there's, there's a kind of release and a kind of making everything right. A reset in the right kind of way. And Jesus says, this is the scripture that I wanted to read to you. And then he does this in verse 20. He closed the book 
He gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. He sat down, and everybody's looking at him. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Everyone then wants to know, what is he going to say? What is he going to say? And he says about the most shocking thing that anyone could say in these circumstances. In fact, it might even be less shocking and less angering to them if he simply says that passage isn't true. Because he puts himself forward and says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What is Jesus saying? He is saying he represents the fulfillment of the prophecy. He is the one who fulfills the prophecy. It is nearly impossible to grasp the magnitude of what Jesus is saying here. He is saying, I'm the one. You're looking at me. I am the one who fulfills this. And it's happening not at some distant future. And I'm not going to just start to bring it to pass. But today, this is being fulfilled. How so, you ask? How so, Jesus, are you fulfilling this prophecy even today in your hearing? What does this involve? And I want to show you four ways that Jesus fulfills this prophecy and represents the, anoint, uh, the uh, fulfillment of the prophecy. First of all, fulfillment as the anointed one. As the anointed one. His identity is that of the anointed one. The spirit of the Lord is upon him. He has been sent by God. He has been anointed. And we find this already in Luke's gospel. Chapter 2 verse 11 uh, says that today in the city of David there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. We saw a man named Simeon in the temple who was told he wouldn't see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. Chapter 2, verse 26. And of course, when Jesus came in, he began to praise God, recognizing this is the Christ. The angels declare it. Simeon declares it by virtue of this prophecy. He is the anointed one. Jesus declares himself to be that in the presence of the people. This is his identity. He has been sent. His mission is stated here in, uh, in this passage. His mission, he has been sent to do some things, to proclaim release, recovery of sight, to set free those who are oppressed and proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. So what does it mean then for the prophecy to be fulfilled today? When he says today, on this day, what is he talking about? What is he talking about? Well, Jesus doesn't say here, that everything that this passage describes will no longer take place after today. In other words, when he um, releases captives and recovers, brings recovery of sight to the blind and sets free those who are oppressed, there are things going on that took place for Jesus not only days before this, but days after this. So he's not saying this is only and all being completed on this one day in history. What does he mean then? Well, he's saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. That's fulfilled. He anointed me. That has happened. He sent me. I'm here. And I'm proclaiming all of these things to you. And I'm proclaiming that I am the one to do this. And you're looking at me and you're seeing the fruit of all of this stuff having been brought to pass. When he read the scripture, he didn't read it about someone else. He read it and was speaking as the one who speaks in Isaiah 61. Isaiah looks out in the future and gives a future recording of the words of the Messiah. Now Jesus comes and he actually says those words that were quoted ahead of time about him. So he fulfills it on this day. He fulfills the prophecy on this day by virtue of who he is, by virtue of the fact that he was sent, 
and that he is proclaiming and declaring, these are the things that God is going to do for you, and he's going to do them through me. But Jesus has things still to carry out in the future. Many of these tasks that, in fact, won't even be completed until the time when he returns in his second advent. But nonetheless, this day, this prophecy has been fulfilled. So he fulfills this prophecy as the anointed one and who he is. He also fulfills it by his actions. By his actions. And this is where we want to wade for a few minutes into the complexities and the nuances of this passage. Because this is a kind of place where people come and sometimes kind of pull their own ideas from this. They have a pre-existing way that they think that Christianity should look. They think that Jesus should save. They think the things that Jesus should do and even that the church should do. And they go here and they kind of find their own preferences in this text. So we want to ask, how does Jesus fulfill this prophecy? What These actions that he describes, what do they mean? What is he doing? How does he carry out preaching the good news to the poor? How does he carry out recovery of sight? When he says releasing captives and setting free oppressed, what is he talking about doing? I think it's too easy to interpret the significance of Jesus and his declaration about these activities in an oversimplified way. So you have some who might say something like this. Jesus came and intended to and did purchase for anybody that belongs to him a kind of temporal prosperity that may be implied by changing the difficult circumstances here. So people who are poor, who are captive, who are blind, who are oppressed. And if you belong to Jesus, they say, then these things should no longer be present in your life. And if they are, it's because you simply have not appropriated God's promises about these things. And you've not found the release and the redemption that God offers to you and promises you in Jesus. And it may even be a matter of your faith that's keeping you back from claiming those promises. This is what some would say about this. Jesus wants you to be free from all of those things and he wants you to be free from them here and now. Of course, it's very difficult to justify that in light of the statements elsewhere in the scripture, including from Jesus himself, that he had no place to lay his head, that his followers may have to give up everything. The followers in the book of Acts were left with basically nothing and almost all of his apostles were executed, not to mention the many, many poor people who were in the church right up until the very end of the New Testament being written. So this is very difficult to justify that this just indicates an immediate temporal prosperity for Christians during this age. Now on the other hand, some people have an understanding of this text which would mainly interpret all of these promises as pictures of the type of spiritual redemption that Jesus brings, of the release that he brings, of a, of a, a cure for spiritual poverty, of setting them free from captivity to sin and enabling them to see, to have their spiritual blindness removed. And to be fair, the scripture does speak of those concepts, those spiritual ways in which Jesus does this. But in my view, neither one of these approaches, a purely temporal now solution or a spiritual only solution, neither one is sufficient. I think it's somewhat more complex than this. We read the original passage from Isaiah, didn't we? And it refers to actual overturning of terrible circumstances in which God's people found themselves. Israel rejected God, and as a result of this, they had been given into the hands of oppressors. They were being exiled. Things were bad. 
Isaiah's prophecy picture today where Israel would be rescued by God from such circumstances. And it included their turning from their sin. It included being forgiven, but it also included a total change, a total redemption in every way. And it would be done by a specific redeemer, a deliverer, someone who would rescue them from not only some of their troubles, not only spiritual troubles, but all of them. And so when Jesus came into the world, he didn't come only talking about a spiritual redemption, but one that is comprehensive. And we know this from the early chapters of the book of Luke. We know this from the promises made through the prophecies of Zechariah, the angel Gabriel in the book of Daniel. Um, we see this over and over through the Old Testament, that these are the things that are promised. And with 2,000 years nearly from this point behind us, there's quite a bit of evidence that this comprehensive redemption has not yet happened. So the major things we want to consider as we try to sort this out are these. First of all, Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God. He came preaching the kingdom of God. This is stated later in this chapter. In fact, um, he came preaching the kingdom all the way at the end of the chapter. You'll see this, verse 43, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also. And this is even stated more directly in the parallel passages of uh, Mark 1.15 and Matthew 4. 17 the kingdom of god jesus came preaching it the kingdom of god has components that are not only spiritual but also physical and the fact that israel rejected their messiah and still does to this day doesn't overturn those unchangeable promises of god however they were postponed until the conditions were met for their fulfillment and these promises were conditioned upon repentance Repentance, not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New. We read in Isaiah 59, those who turn from transgression in Jacob. These are the ones who get it. What did Jesus and even John the Baptist show up saying? Do what for the kingdom of God is at hand? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's ready to go. All you have to do is turn your hearts and embrace your deliverer, your redeemer. But what did they do? No, we will not accept you. The kingdom of God coming upon the earth was and is conditioned not only upon the arrival of the Messiah, but the turning of the people from their sin, the repentant response of Israel to John and to Jesus when he arrived. And yet still, the kingdom promises include the physical components stated here in this text. Now, when Jesus was on the earth, did he do some of these things? Of course he did. He did many of these things, and he healed people. He brought them out of hard circumstances, not everyone, but some, to the point where... When John the Baptist started to doubt whether this Jesus was, in fact, the one that John had already told everybody that he was, over in Luke chapter 7, John sent messengers, verse 19, and said, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? And they came to him, and what did Jesus do? Luke 7, 21 and 22, At that very time he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. From Isaiah 61. The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Who is the one who receives the blessing? It's the one who accepts Jesus by faith and doesn't take offense at him in unbelief. What is the issue then? Is the issue that Jesus doesn't do these things? No, the issue is who actually responds to him by believing him and believing his word. So Jesus did many of these things that are here, but he didn't finish the job, if you will. He didn't do this for everyone, and he didn't bring all of the promises of Isaiah 61 and thereabout to completion. But he did show that he's the one who could do that. He showed that he's the kind of person, and in fact the very person, who will do this in conjunction 
with the arrival of the kingdom of God. And so these miraculous deeds that Jesus did are not the complete fulfillment of everything, but they are representative of the fact that he is going to do this. Um, now, of course, I do want to acknowledge that the stated circumstances here of poverty, captivity, blindness, and even uh, oppression do describe not only physical circumstances, but also spiritual circumstances. There are uh, spiritual corollaries to physical problems. And in fact, these are our most fundamental needs. If we don't deal with these spiritual needs, then we could have a rich life and it would mean nothing. It would mean nothing at all. And Jesus, through the gospel of the forgiveness of sins and then the giving of the Holy Spirit, does set people free from these things. He overcomes spiritual poverty. He proclaims release to people who are caught in any kind of sin. He gives eyes to see and ears to hear. And he even enables people who are oppressed to be able to endure through those circumstances. So Jesus then does do these things in a spiritual way. But that is not the whole thing. That is not the whole thing. We should note one more thing as well that it's clear from the rest of Jesus' ministry and teaching that he didn't come only to save people who are in these kind of circumstances. Jesus didn't just come to the poor people. Jesus didn't come to people in hardship. Jesus came to save sinners, no matter their circumstances. And it just so happens that many of the people that he came to deliver and to save as sinners find themselves in these circumstances from which he intended to deliver them and to rescue them, and he will do when the kingdom of God arrives. All of this to say then, stating the fulfillment of this prophecy on this occasion, Jesus is not saying that these circumstances would never happen again. He is not saying that believers would never endure hardship again. But what he's saying is, this is what God sent me to do, and I am the one who will bring this about. And I am here today as the fulfillment of God's promise to send someone. And so now it's your job, people in the synagogue of Nazareth, to respond to me in the right kind of way. Jesus is not coming then to challenge society's structures. He's not coming to upend political and governmental systems as such. He's not coming to give a great switcheroo of giving all the money from the rich to the poor and making all the poor people rich. He has a specific mission that's in line with Old Testament promises. And the glorious thing is that anyone, not only who is part of Israel, but who is part of any nation, receives the same promise of redemption when they put their faith in him. It's not only those who turn from transgression in Jacob, from transgression in Israel who receive these benefits. It's anyone who turns from their sins at all. And this is what Jesus says at the end of this entire gospel, at the end of the gospel of Luke. I'm going to spoil the ending for you. I want to apologize for this. Spoiling the ending, he says in Luke chapter 24, verse 46. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to who? All the nations. Beginning from Jerusalem, but to all the nations. Now, there is much more in this passage, and we'll have the chance to look at this next time. But I want to make sure that you understand that Jesus is the one in whom 
we are to place our faith, that he is the redeemer, that he is the one who has been sent by God to offer these things, and that the only solution to our problems, no matter what else we may try to do for ourselves in this life, the only solutions to our real problems, and all the solutions to our real problems, are found in what Jesus promises, in what Jesus offers. As he says here, he came to proclaim good news. He came to preach the gospel. And I hope that you will, having heard that this morning, that you will make sure that you have, in fact, believed that gospel. And if you have believed that gospel, that you'll rejoice in seeing Jesus as the one who has been sent to proclaim it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ coming as the promised one. Thank you for the hope that he gives us of being made right with you now and of every, uh, of every hard circumstance being one day overturned and removed. May you give us the grace until such time to wait, knowing that we have a Savior who endured worse than we ever could, one who went to the cross for us, one who suffered, the one who had nothing in this life, the one who gave himself as a servant and who made himself obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And may we look to him as the one to whom we are so thankful and whom we put our faith and to whom we give all the glory. We pray these things in his name. Amen.